What's going on, guys? And welcome back to the 50 Plus One Football Show, your home for all things Premier League and Bundesliga. I'm Billy, and with me is a man who, unlike Manuel Neuer, managed to survive his recent skiing trip uninjured. It's Lewis. No, Billy, not all German goalkeepers go skiing when there's only 10 centimeters of snow cover. But, as always, guys, we have a nice little host of topics for you today, and it's more of a Premier League-heavy episode, if I'm being honest. We thought we'd stray away from some Bayern and Man United topics. I know it can get a little bit annoying at times, but they do give us so much, don't they, those two clubs? Anyways, we will be having a look at Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga. They are having a little bit of an up-and-up restart to the season after the winter break. Now they've got three wins on the trot, and one of those was in Munich. Then we will move over to the Premier League, where we will have a look at Chelsea under Mauricio Pochettino. All of the things that Chelsea has done in the past nine months haven't really yielded results. Then we will have a look at Arsenal and their big win over Liverpool, and a nice little bit of hypocrisy from Liverpool fans, as always. Then we have some bits and bobs from the Premier League, starting off with Calvin Phillips and his move to West Ham. How is he done? Then we'll also have a look at Richarlison's renaissance under Ange Postecoglou, and then finish off with Roy Hodgson. All that and more right after this. Let's talk about a club on the rise. And it's not one that we've spoken about much at all on this show. But let's have a, a quick chat about Werder Bremen. Well, I mean, the biggest headline that they grabbed was that 1-0 win in Munich. I'm just going to give you a couple guesses at who was playing for Bremen the last time they won in Munich. Ooh, can I have a year? Or will that give 2008. it away? 2008. Was it Claudio Pizarro? Among others, yes, but... <laughs> There's one standout name that I think will, I'd say not every football fan will get. Oh, Mesut Ozil. There you go. Just to to give you some perspective as to how long ago that was. Ozil was playing for Werder Bremen. That is, you know, it's, it's a massive thing, obviously, considering that, you know, four years prior to their last win in Munich, Bremen were actually winning the Bundesliga. So for uh, the the former number two club in Germany to be finally celebrating the first win in 16 years at the Allianz Arena is, I'd say, special in and of itself. But the thing also is that they deservedly won that game. You know, that, that, that was Bayern definitely producing way too little not much going forward. Defensively speaking, Bremen had a goal disallowed as well. It could have been 2-0 for all we know. And if we're being honest, Bremen haven't lost since December 2nd. And that loss came to fall by Stuttgart, who are currently third at the table. That's a team that you are allowed to lose to, especially if you're Werder Bremen, who are a mid-table club. You know, they, they've had draws against Gladbach, Bochum, Leipzig. Um, I said it in the intro, it's three wins on the trot. Um, obviously, the one against Bayern, then Freiburg, then Mainz. Undoubtedly, you could you could go as far as to say that they are one of the most informed teams in Europe at the minute. 
Well, they currently sit ninth in the table, but they are only five points off of that UEFA Conference League place. And it's nice to see. You know, it, it sounds really weird, but obviously saying it's nice to see other teams doing well, other than like the, you know the established, yeah, yeah, obviously top three or four. But it's refreshing to see a club like Werder Bremen come back on the rise because obviously they've been there before, they've won the league before. This isn't like a an Union Berlin thing where they've come up and they keep improving. It's almost like they're getting back to how good they could be. Obviously, there's still a long way to go. They've got a very young coach in Erle Werner. He's only 35 years old. So, potentially, could be there for a long time. And I have a little bit of an invested interest in uh, Werder Bremen. One, because I'm absolutely in love with Leonardo Bittencourt. Not not a clue why. And uh, I was about to say, he's definitely not one of their better players. Look, <laughs> Fell in love in like 2012 when he played for Dortmund, and I've just carried on. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, but <laughs> and they've uh, they signed Isaac Hansen Arrowen from uh, United, and I was quite annoyed about that because he was one of the more higher rated uh, youngsters. So I'm really excited to see how he gets on in a team that's a doing well, and b that will probably give him a fair bit of game time. I was about to say because you have to say that. Brim are making the most of what they got because their squad arguably isn't much better than what they've what their position in the table right now says. And I think anything over mid-table places is already overachieving for Brim. I I know that sounds harsh, but given the squad that they have, I would say it's almost not surprising. It's it's one of the things that I'd say, I mean, biggest surprise, probably not. But the fact that Bremen right now are only ninth, I'd attribute to the fact that they just didn't have the best start to the season. Because, I mean, like you said, they're definitely on the up and up. They ha- They're good on form. And I think the only thing that remains to be seen is how far they can take it. Because, you know, that UEFA Conference League spot, if Bremen were to get that, ladies and gents, put your bets on now because those odds are probably pretty good. Just, sorry, just one quick caveat of, of Werder Bremen's squad. They got Naby Keita on a yeah. free. Uh, and to date has only made three appearances and got booked once uh, for Werder Bremen. It's peak. His highest market value is 65 million euros. He's now currently valued at six. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those transfer coups at the beginning of the season, and everyone was like, especially in Bremen, they were all like, wow, we can land a guy like Naby Keita. Um, I'd say that he probably didn't make it as far as he could have maybe at Liverpool due to the fact that he is quite injury-prone, which also, you know, has been shown by his track record of appearances so far. Factor in that he also went to AFCON. You get three matches or three appearances and one booking. It hasn't quite worked out as Blim probably expected it to, but there is still a good amount of games left in this season for him to make his mark. So, you know, you never know. 
maybe he could get the get the momentum or carry the momentum forward that they already have. Well, for the sake of the remainder of his career, let's hope that is the case. But it's probably a good place to leave the Bundesliga. And now let's move over to the Premier League. Chelsea FC. Pochettino now has a point less after 23 games than Graham Potter did after 23 games with Chelsea. Is the only reason Pochettino is not in the hot seat, as in maybe even getting the sack soon, because there is literally no one on the market that Chelsea could possibly get? Possibly part of that, yeah. But also, because of the financial fair play scrutiny that a lot of clubs have been under, you know, we've seen a very quiet January in the Premier League. You know, Crystal Palace were the top spenders in January with £30 million which doesn't happen very much, Crystal Palace being the top spenders in any window. But there was a an article recently this week that claimed that if Chelsea were to sack Pochettino and his backroom staff and all that, it would cost them in excess of £10 million, which is probably £10 million they don't have right now in this moment because of, you know, we've seen Everton again with financial fair play. Nottingham Forest have been struck with it you know united couldn't go in for a striker because there's literally no money not even for a loan player so a worse record than graham potter after 23 matches arguably a worse arsenal of talent at graham potter's disposal there's been an awful lot of money spent by chelsea since they sacked the former brighton manager Okay, they they comfortably and quite convincingly beat Aston Villa in the FA Cup during the midweek. A 3-1 win at Villa Park where they almost went a year unbeaten. So it's no mean feat. Villa are doing very, very well at the moment. But at the weekend previous, they played another team from the Midlands. And it was the Wolves who comfortably beat Chelsea at the bridge for the first time since 1979. You know, Mateus Cunha, my baller. I was about to say, he, he, he did enjoy some... Uh... Some good times with Hertha Berlin. I'm kidding. I don't think he ever enjoyed good times with Hertha Berlin. So despite going ahead, Cole Palmer again a saving grace for Chelsea this season. They then went 4-1 down. Uh, an own goal from Badi Ashiro and a hat-trick from Mateus Cunha. So Thiago Silva got a late reply to make it 4-2. But his wife, before that, had put on Twitter, it's time to change. If you wait any longer, it will be too late. Now, I'm not suggesting that Todd Bowley and the powers that be take any notice of the social media ramblings of a player's wife, but... Doesn't she have a point, though? (laughs) She may have a point. I was more than happy to give Pochettino the benefit of the doubt for the PSG job, because that is a poison chalice in anyone that takes it. Yeah. Is almost destined to fail. Pretty much, yeah. I'm now starting to think the same of Chelsea, which is crazy to think because they are in a Carabao Cup final against Liverpool at the end of February. Which, you know, arguably the League Cup, just like with the FA Cup, it has its own set of rules. You know, it's it's not whoever's in form, whoever's uh, playing the best. Anything can happen in those 90 minutes and it just goes to show because arguably Chelsea making it to any final this season is pretty unbelievable but with everything going on 
at that game. And I mean, the fans are slowly but surely, I say slowly, probably not even slowly, they are surely right now starting to lose patience with the club in general. I mean, I'm just going to read out one of, you know, our our Chelsea friend and yours, Louis Beneventi, posted after the Wolves game. Today's result wasn't even about the game. From top to bottom, there is simply nothing working. From the vision to the execution to the understanding, everything. Chelsea Football Club is a shambles, and changing the manager alone won't fix this. There was an opportunity in the summer to lay some foundations to see the club go forward, but none of that has happened. Completely bereft of identity and culture, Chelsea needs to change, and it needs to happen now. Pretty damning words, wouldn't you say, from you know one of the biggest Chelsea supporters that I know. Damning, yeah, but it's not anything we haven't seen since Todd Burley took over. That distinct lack of any real structure. I'd say also the identity and culture thing kind of ties into that because the structure that Chelsea Football Club used to have under Roman Abramovich, as much as he was trigger-happy with managers, you could still see that he had a clear vision going forward. And he also let the people who had the football know-how make decisions. Which, this isn't a generalization, and I'm sure there are some good American owners. FSG are a little bit more hands-off at Liverpool, but again, they've let footballing people make those decisions. But American owners don't tend to do that. They tend to be quite money-focused. And you look at the transfer strategy under Todd Bowley. You know, it's just expensive players. Very similar to Alan Pardew's Newcastle. French is not a system. Expensive players is not a system. It's not even expensive players that are actually worth the money that they that was paid for them. And if you look at, you know, I, I hate to use his name again and again, but Mikhailo Mudrik is just the embodiment of what is going wrong at Chelsea. And it's not even the fact that he's an untalented player and whatnot. I just think, you know, for one, if he was really serious about getting his career back on track he would maybe go to a club with lesser standards and you know a better structure you know I, arguably a mid-table club would probably be the better place for him to really you know get his career back on track but you know the guy was never worth the 100 million he wasn't worth 50 and it's exactly that what you've said is that gung-ho oh yeah let's just spunk a bunch of money and that will do the trick because, I mean, I'm sorry, but I've never seen a worse midfield duo of Caicedo and Enzo Fernandez for $200 million. Everyone's losing their minds about that, that Fernandez free kick in the FA Cup. But, you know, I'm sorry. That's the one good thing he's produced all season, basically. There hasn't been a game where I haven't... Literally, there hasn't been any performance this season where I've thought wow, those guys are really starting to show that they're worth the 100 mil that they're playing, that they paid. It was a good free kick. Okay, credit where it's due. Yeah, I'm, it was a good free kick. Don't get me wrong. We'll give him his flowers. But he then went home and led on his bed and looked at his posters of Kobe Mania on his wall. <laughs> but that is the difference. It's a player having an influence, having a real influence that cost no money. Compared exactly. to a player that 
was over a hundred million pounds. And again, off the back of a World Cup, I'm sure he will end up being a good player. But he's never a hundred mil worth. Sorry. He's still relatively good, but it's just you do not buy a player off the back of a tournament. I'm looking forward to who has a very good Euros in Germany this year. Because they will get a move. Oh, 100 percent But you know, Sofian Amrabat gone on loan to United, and it's really not worked at all. Nope. You know, I'll use West Brom as an example. Christian Gamboa and Sebastian Pocanioli. Now, Christian Gamboa scored a fantastic goal against Bayern when Bocken beat them. Yes, 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 yes. Which I would always take the opportunity to bring up. But uh, other than that, relative obscurity for both those players, but both signed off the back of World Cups. I mean, Hammonds Rodriguez, arguably, if we're being honest, he had an amazing World Cup 2014 where he gets the Puskas winning goal as well. And then at Real Madrid, maybe his first season is solid. But after that, it just keeps going downhill to the point where he then goes out on loan to Bayern. And now, you know, at age 32, he is, he asked to be released by, I think it was FC Sao Paulo. And Brazilian reports were talking about um, the fact that he wasn't playing because he needed to, you know, or they were talking about the fact that he needed. Oh, in German, it's called Belastungssteuerung, um, which just basically means like, you know, they had to they had to manage his game time, which apparently in Brazil, if any media are talking about managing game time, it means that the player is overweight. And then he asked to be released after scoring one goal in, I believe it was 13 or 14 appearances for the club at age 32. So I think if anything, a good World Cup leading to a big money move, sure, Sometimes it can work. See Mesut Özil after his amazing World Cup in 2010, getting the move to Real Madrid. Sami Khedira, likewise, and both went on to have very good Madrid careers. And then Özil, even at Arsenal, had a solid career. It can happen, but at the minute, you know, you, Fernandez and Caicedo have this hundred million pound rucksack. Of course, you're not going to play amazingly, especially when you're damn near worth half of what the money paid for you was, even even if that. Maybe they're worth 50, if that. I think it's the Paul Pogba problem. You could probably count on one hand the, the games that he had for United where he looked the most expensive player in the world that he was at one point. Yeah. And now that that fee, ninety million for Paul Pogba sounds paltry in comparison to some of the sums. But let's leave Chelsea. Let's go from blue to red. Let's have a look at Arsenal against Liverpool because it's blown the title race wide open, or has it? Because I'd say it's put it firmly in City's hands again. But what happened in that game? What was going through the mind of? Virgil van Dijk and Allison, a horrendous miscommunication between two of the most experienced and better players in the league for Liverpool. You would say so, wouldn't you? But I mean, Allison just completely sails past the ball. Van Dijk obviously is, you know, he's shielding Gabriel Mart. 
Martinelli. There you go. Gabriel Martinelli. He was he was just shielding him off, which in that situation as a center back, you should do. And you see in Van Dyke's face in the replays, you know, he's only looking at his goalkeeper. He has no eyes for the ball. He's only looking at his goalkeeper, and he's like basically saying, without saying anything, come get this, please. This is you. Which Allison definitely, to his credit, did realize because he came out. The only problem is Allison just completely whiffed right past the ball. And it's one of those things like, I don't know if the, is this just someone or is, is this something that you would get if you're not like a full on Liverpool fan that you're too quick to say? But is it the fact that, you know, every time Allison basically has a title on the line, he becomes, you know, a mistake prone goalkeeper? And the other 99.9% of the season, he is arguably the best keeper in the Premier League. Are you accusing the man of choking in the big moment? Possibly. I mean... Because that's that's big chat coming from a, someone who plays in goal as well. Because you know what that feeling's like. I know what the feeling's like. I don't want to be the purveyor of this of this narrative. I'm only saying that this was something that I saw on social media multiple times. I'm not just saying, you know, the one odd tweet. It was many comments, many tweets coming and saying, you know, why is Allison choking in the big games? Is this just something, and that's why I'm asking, is this just something that is being pushed by, you know, social media pranksters or so people who just have no ball knowledge on social media? Or is this something that you could actually say? I think it's probably one being pushed by aggregator accounts. It's being pushed by people that claim that Neymar had a better career than Gareth Bale. It's <laughs> oh, it's, it's a reaction. Ooh. That's not even a controversial take. Gareth Bale pisses all over Neymar's career. I'm sorry. I'd much rather have had Gareth Bale's career. Even the problems at Madrid at the end would much rather have had that career. Yeah, okay, I'll go Because he you did it that. the hard way. He worked his way up from... Southampton through Spurs, all those trophies at Real Madrid. It's not even a comparison. Neymar is a flair merchant, and look at where he is now. Anyway, Ooh, it's yeah. a it's a reactionary thing designed to get people to. Oh, uh, actually, uh, I think you'll find he's the best goalkeeper in the league because uh, he's actually got uh, X, Y, and Z uh, expected goal saved. You know, people twelve year olds basically fighting on Twitter. Okay, well, see, see that that was my question. I because don't get me wrong, I hate you know as a as a goalkeeper myself getting that type of narrative pushed because for me, Allison definitely is top three, if not the best keeper in the Premier League at this very moment in time. He's he's definitely yeah, I'm I'm more than happy to give him the best goalkeeper in the Premier League accolade at the moment because I don't rate Edison in the slightest. He's just an outfield player that can use his hands. <laughs> but credit to Jurgen Klopp that he came in and the goalkeeping situation was Simon Mignolet who uh, okay for at the time when Liverpool signed him he was probably fine he was really good for Sunderland it wasn't good enough for where Liverpool wanted to be he got no. Loris Karias in and we all know how that went you think if that Champions League final was played this year he wouldn't have been able to carry on they would have taken him off for concussion which is the sad bit you know i think so it, it's difficult for me to sit here and slag him off no i'm i'm i will forever and i will go to my grave saying this i will forever say that loris carries 
he isn't a crap keeper in that sense. He definitely showed that he was a keeper good enough to take Liverpool, unlike Simon Mignolet, good enough to take Liverpool to where they wanted to be. And the fact that his career was derailed by that game. And, I mean, Jurgen Klopp said it himself. Games like that can make or break a career. 100% correct. But the sad thing is that it wasn't even Karius at the top of his game just making a mistake. It was more likely than not because he was concussed. And that just, for me, is one of the saddest endings to a career. Because everyone forever remember him as being a crap goalkeeper who cost Liverpool in the Champions League final 2018. And that's not how it should be. At all. Because he didn't. He took... He, he carried Liverpool for parts of that season. And I feel like if if people would be able to remember that bit of his career more, then you could at least salvage something. Because obviously, af, you know, after that game, his career really just went downhill very, very steeply. Yeah. But look, it, it, it didn't work out with Karias and, and Klopp. I, he, he picked Allison, and it, it has worked. Yeah, yeah. Let's be honest. Some of the, the saves he's made in clutch moments have been fantastic. The goal he scored against West Brom <laughs> from that corner. So there, there is a lot to be said. It's, it's just a mistake. It's, we all know the quality that Van Dyke possesses. And Allison as well, yeah. And, you know, slightly less since that injury comeback for Van Dyke, I'd say, but that's the same of any player. Let's park the mistakes for a minute. So Arsenal run out 3-1 winners. Yeah. Ironically, both of the players we've just spoken about at length involved in the third goal. Trossard shot deflects off Van Dijk and goes through the legs of Allison to give them a 3-1 win. I was now, going to say, they didn't look, neither of them looked too good in that sense. A little bit shell-shocked, perhaps, but the celebrations afterwards have caused a lot of dividing opinions, polarising opinions. Liverpool fans claiming that Arteta over-celebrated, you know, with his reaction to that third goal and Odegaard taking the cameraman's camera to take a picture in front of the main stand at Arsenal, which personally, I think if you're that cameraman or say his family, his kids, his wife or something, that's a fantastic moment. moment. You know, you've had a picture taken at the club that you support on the pitch in front of those fans after a win against Liverpool, taken by Martin Odegaard. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. My main issue comes from the hypocrisy of Liverpool fans moaning about the over-celebration of a manager when their gaffer is the most notorious man for it. You know, we saw when he celebrated, I can't remember who the team was against, but he celebrated, he went right into the fourth official's face and shouted, ran back down to his technical area and tweaked his hamstring. We've seen constant fist bumps after games that don't deserve it. The, when they drew with West Brom and they all got in front of the cop and did the way, way, <laughs> stuff like that, running down the pitch in a Mourinho-esque fashion, like when Porto beat Man United in the Champions League. You know, those moments to get into a Champions League semi-final, you beat Man United at Old Trafford to get into the next stage that warrants a sprint down the touchline. Yeah, that was a massive game for Arsenal in the sense of being in a title race again. 
I'd say that warrants a celebration like it had. Obviously, you don't get the open top bus out. You don't milk it. You enjoy it for the for the day. But the next time you're in that training ground, that's it. It's done. You you are allowed to enjoy that moment until the next time you go to training. I agree with you. I think the reason why people are moaning about it a little bit is because they know that Arsenal, more often than not, will not. And I say Arsenal. I say this is more down to their fan base than anything else. I would argue that more of their fans are probably going to milk it for longer than just you know up until the next match day because even if the next match day goes horribly wrong it'll still be all oh yeah but we beat liverpool 3-1 and i think that's just down to the fact that you know arsenal fans for the longest time that were used to making top four continuously have now had a bad run of it and now the minute they're back up there and fighting for titles and you know are are comfortably in the second or third place at minimum they've now kind of got this expectation that they should be winning i think that's that's the reason why some liverpool fans will probably be more you know i'd say pissed is a bad, is a big word but they'll probably be angrier about it than not, than than anything else but does that not come from a liverpool fan's own feeling of that they have the god given right to beat arsenal because that's the that's the beauty of football is that anyone can beat Obviously, anyone. yeah, yeah. That's what I mean when I say there's a whole hypocrisy about the thing. I've got... 100%. Like, like I said, I said it, I, I'm agreeing with you, but there is there will be those who say that, you know, Arsenal fans are going to milk it and not... You know, so I'm not saying Liverpool fans aren't guilty of it themselves, but I'd argue that some Arsenal fans will definitely milk that 3-1 for all it's worth. But I think that's enough time spent on the London clubs. Let's have a little look at the bips and bobs around the Premier League that have happened. And we'll start with a player who has kind of fallen into that trap of English players and promising careers derailed by a big money move. And that's Calvin Phillips. Would you say that one... He was worth the big money move. And two, he really had that much promise. It was just derailed by City or it was just a too big a move to begin with for him. Look, Calvin Phillips is, is a little bit of a difficult one because he was good for Leeds. Let's, let's not claim that yeah. he wasn't. But I think in that situation, it was more that he was the best of a bad team. So he looked a lot better. Then went to the Euros with England. was fantastic for England at the Euros was fantastic for the media you know uh we, we did a, a feature with him a sit down feature talking about his nan and all that and his journey and he's such a likable person such a, a genuine player but it shouldn't have gone to city why i think it's a, it was a massive move city are the expectations that city are, are ridiculous i think probably a stopgap move had he gone to west ham and then to City, you could kind of say, okay, you've done you've done a bit of a a pathway there. You haven't gone straight to the top for a team that was relegated. Yeah, that's a, that's a big big ask. The team that was relegated going straight to the team that was champions. You know, it's, and it he's tried to get his career back on track with a low move to West Ham, 
He's made two appearances, one as a starter, one as a sub. He started against Bournemouth, gave the ball away, and Dominic Solanke put Bournemouth one up. He came on as a sub at Old Trafford, which, to be fair to him, he was getting a load of stick from the fans whilst he was warming up. He turned around and gave it back and joined in. Because, <laughs> obviously, you know, Leeds and City, so he's, like, one of the least popular people inside that stadium. I was about to say. <laughs> other than Andy. But he came on, he lost the ball from McTominay, and Garnacho scored. But it was the lack of want to try and get back. He got up and just started walking. So, not a great look. It's not a great look, but I've made comment on this. And by all means, call me out if you think I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm talking absolute codswallop. But I think he goes along the same line as Scott Sinclair, who joined City from Swansea, and Jack Rodwell, who joined. City from Everton. Very promising young English talent derailed by going to City, not getting the chances to play and it completely stunted any growth and any development they would have had. Pep Guardiola fantastic coach. I'm not saying it's Pep's fault. He clearly saw something in Calvin Phillips that he wanted but then when he got to City saw something he didn't like. Hot take for me. Does Jack Grealish fall into the same category? Because arguably, that man had the world at his feet moving from Aston Villa. He could have, he probably could have gotten a few bigger moves from a club like Villa when they were still mid table. Obviously, now that's a different team um, that Unai Emery has formed. But would you say that? Jack Grealish should have maybe gone for a bit of a smaller move, maybe gone for a team that were gunning for Europa League. Some some team that isn't star-studded where he's just one of many. Because you could argue that for $100 million, Jack Grealish has produced relatively little at City. Well, that's that's exactly the thing. There was all that talk that the season beforehand, where Villa almost got relegated, there was talk that Tottenham were going to go in for him for like 30 million or something like that, if Villa got relegated. They didn't. They stayed up. He ended up having a great season and going to City. The The thing I'd say, because he clearly has the that arrogance in his own ability yeah, to succeed at City. So that arrogance is there. It's a good arrogance to have, particularly if you're going to survive at the top level. I was about to say, you need that. But he's a very different player to the one that City signed. And I think he's had that flair, that, well, je ne sais quoi type quality, coached out of him by Pep Guardiola to fit with how Pep wants to play. So, I mean, I can hear the angry tweets now. I was about to say, you did say literally two minutes ago that it's not all Pep's fault, for instance, with Calvin Phillips and you know the other English talents that have come and kind of had their growth stunted at City. Would you then say that Grealish is just that, that exception to that rule and that it's not always Pep's fault? So you're yeah, sticking I, with that narrative? I'm sticking with it because Scott Sinclair and Jack Rodwell were way before Pep. Uh, yeah, true. That that <clears throat> that that coming on to it, but Calvin Phillips as being, yeah. you know, 
Calvin Phillips, I, he's not changed anything about his game. I just think that Pep Guardiola doesn't like what he sees when he trains. Otherwise, you'd have gotten game time. You know, he wouldn't be playing John Stones or Rico Lewis in that midfield partnership alongside Rodri. You know, Gundogan left in the summer. It was the perfect opportunity to sort of try and build that partnership of Rodri, who in the Premier League hasn't lost for a calendar year. Stupid stat, by the way. You know, the games that he hasn't played, I think it's four of them, the City have lost. So he had the perfect opportunity to grow him alongside Rodri, but something's clearly not worked out. Yeah. You know, and, and Jack Grealish, that first season didn't play a great deal for City, didn't do a great deal for City. Because he was still trying to be the the big man that he was at Villa. Villa needed that. They needed him to take all that weight on his shoulders and to yeah, yeah. be the team basically at the time. City don't need that. So he's had to change the way he plays. He's had to lose some of what he did so well at Villa. I mean, you say Spurs would have been a perfect move, in my opinion. If he had gone to Spurs, how different would that have been? Because I think at Spurs, he would have also been able to, I mean, given Harry Kane, Hoyman's son, are, are already there. But imagine you had had Jack Grealish to add to that mix. It is a, it is a lot of what if, but that's what that's that's my main point with this whole thing is that arguably if you'd had Jack Grealish going to a team like Spurs instead of like City, would his career have progressed differently? Speaking of Spurs, Richarlison has had a renaissance under Ange Postacoglu. I think that is the main sentiment that, you know, Ange has somehow gotten this striker who scored before that. Was it, what, one game, literally a goal a game that was then disallowed and he always had a good celebration to go along with it. And now he's gotten that guy to score, if my stats are correct, nine goals in the last eight. I mean, I think the the real question is now, can Postacoglu get Timo Werner to do the same thing? And if that's the case, they're golden. See, again, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because Richarlison's been fantastic. He's picked up that mantle left by Harry Kane and in recent weeks by Son when he's been at the Asian Cup. He's playing as a number nine. He's getting fantastic service, particularly now that Madison's back. It's only going to get better when it's, Son is back in the team. It's only going to get better. Werner's playing on the left wing, which I was very vocal about when he was at Chelsea. <laughs> I was about to say. You buy a player who's played a striker for Leipzig for years and done fantastically well up front as a striker for Leipzig for years. You bring him in and you whack him on the wing. You lose what he's good at. It's a different skill set playing out wide than it is to playing up front. But if Richarlison's got nine in his last eight, you're not going to walk into the boss's office and say, uh, Ange, just thinking, do you mind swapping me and Richarlison round? <laughs> well, obviously not. I mean, put it this way. You say picking up the mantle of Harry Kane. Obviously, Harry Kane scored 31 goals in a season where Spurs finished eighth. And Son arguably didn't have the best time 
of his career. I'd say picking up the mantles might be a far stretch, but now with Spurs getting the players back from Asian and AFCON Cups, is there a solid chance that they will finish top four with the renaissance that Richarlison has had? I mean, there's every possibility of it. It's a very tight, tight run competition. You know, they're two points behind Villa, six points ahead of United. But if they run into a, a patch of bad form, if Villa run into a patch of good form, you know, I, I, there's a big game for Spurs at the weekend that they're not playing in. Villa hosting United at Villa Park. You know, if Villa win that and keep two points ahead, that's a big game for Villa. You can't see them losing many other games that they against the, the, the lower down teams. If United win, they'll keep the hunt up. But if United win and Spurs win, Tottenham going to the top four. And then it's probably difficult to see them losing that chokehold on the Champions League spots. Which I think for Ange in his first season would be a fantastic achievement. I think if you told a Spurs fan at the start of the season, oh, you're going to get the Celtic manager in, uh, but he's going to get you top four. They'd probably not only bit your hand, but they'd rip your arm off. I mean... (laughs) I want to be positive about Postacoglu because I've been... a negative voice on him recently, particularly with the way he stuck to his game plan when they went down to nine men and everyone praised us. Like, no, what the fuck are you doing? You don't play high line when you have nine men. You put nine men essentially on the goal line and pump it long to try and find an outboard somewhere. But it's been a good season. I think if they can finish in the top four, it'll be a great season for Spurs. Obviously, they're out of both cups now, so they're not. The only chance of winning anything is the Premier League, which they're not going to win. I was about to say, please, please don't play devil's advocate and say that they're going to win that. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not stupid. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not an idiot. Well, I think that would be a great place to move on to our last topic for today, and that is a peculiar decision to put it lightly by Roy Hodgson. Now he took a player and put him on when the fitness level of that said player was questionable. Why don't you just take us through exactly what happened and then try to unpack the madness that is Roy Hodgson in that moment. So Michael Elise in their previous match at home to Sheffield United went off with uh, with a, a leg injury, calf or hamstring, something like that. He was on the bench against against Brighton away at the Amex. They're 3-0 down at halftime. Game has completely gone from them. They're not going to get anything from it. No point in chasing the game. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Roy Hodgson, in his old age, decides to bring on Michael Elise to try and chase the game. He chases a long ball up from a Brighton corner. Tweaks that injury again after eight minutes, has to go off, go straight down the tunnel, looks absolutely fuming, and is now out for two months. Now, 
A lot of the blame has to lie with Roy Hodgson. I'll give you that. But the medical team, because who has okayed that? I was about to say, who cleared him for that? Alise himself. Because only he knows how he's feeling. True. If you're in a position where you're not 100% fit, don't risk it. Because he's now put himself out for eight weeks. You know, and there's all this talk about him going to... He almost went to Chelsea before he signed a contract extension. There's talk of Arsenal wanting him, United wanting him. But they'll be put off by this injury record. 100%. It's such a stupid thing. I mean, Roy Hodgson won't last very long at Crystal Palace. He will be gone at the end of the season, probably before that, if results don't improve. They're ever so slightly fortunate there are worse teams in them this year. Because if this yeah, was last year, yeah. they'd be down. They'd be gone. But you play at a, a decent standard. If you were, say you tweaked your hamstring the previous week, had done a bit of light training, and it felt okay, but you could still kind of feel a slight twang, would you risk it? Would you say to the medical staff, yeah, I'm, I'm good to play, I'm good to play, knowing you're one of the team's best players. So regardless of who comes in to replace you, you're going to get back in that team anyway. I think it's a different thing because obviously before the game against Brighton, you're obviously not going to say, no, nah, I don't want to play against one of the better teams in the league. On the other hand, I don't know who was making the decisions exactly. I hope I would hope that the medical team maybe were overruled. But if we're being honest, you know, it's if it's 3-0, even even if Elise had made the somewhat questionable decision to basically overrule the medical staff and say, Roy. I'm going to be in the squad or I feel fit enough to be in the squad. You know, if the game's on the line, put me in. Even at that point, as a manager, you should have the gall and, you know, the foresight to make the decision that you're down 3-0, you have to make or you want to make one sub. You don't put the player that has said, I can go, into the squad if need be you don't make that decision at that moment in time for me still the majority of the blame is with roy hodgson because no no smart coach will do that that just makes zero sense as you said the game was gone and the guy was only playing most likely because it was against brighton which is one of the teams that you know one of the bigger teams in the prem you want to try and get points off of them. And if, you know, like you said, he's the best player on that team or one of the better players on that team who usually start, then obviously he's going to say like, yeah, okay. You know, if, if, if the game's tight, you know, put me in as a sub and uh, it's, it's, it'll work out. But at that moment in time, still choosing to make the sub for me, very little blame to go with Elise or the medical staff and most of it to go with Roy Hodgson. Well, at 78, it's probably about time he goes into retirement. He's had a fantastic career. England, Liverpool, West Brom, Inter Milan. People forget that one. <laughs> People do forget Inter Milan. And then every now and again, it'll come up with that Roberto Carlos uh, story where he told him that 
he wasn't very good. <laughs> so it's not always been good for Roy, but I think that's probably a good place to leave it for this week. And as always, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to AT. Ooh. And as always, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to 50 Plus One Sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure to check out all of our previous episodes on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Spotify. That is the 50 Plus One football show, obviously. But as always, thank you very much for listening, guys. Keep calm and love the beautiful game.